Building on that vital discussion around food, oh, to have a crystal ball to gaze ahead accurately when trying to discern what comes next in terms of big power positioning, considering the Ukraine war. While we focus on our election, a range of influential commentators have been speculating intensely, privately and publicly, on the ramifications of this conflict. It's very much keeping them awake at night, particularly in Europe, where the shockwaves of war on its soil was bad enough. Now various countries are grappling with how they'll prepare their peoples for other impacts like energy shortages and rising prices and bigger defence spending. Well, one visitor to Australia has been keenly involved in this speculation and held a Lowy Institute for International Policy audience in rapt attention during a public discussion in Sydney this week. Bobo Lowe started life as an Australian diplomat and has a long career working for some respected international outlets. He's just produced a new analysis for them where he warns that optimistically imagining peace negotiations might be just a bit hasty. But he had a lot more to say about international friendships and it's my pleasure to welcome him to flesh this out. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my great pleasure, Geraldine. Welcome back to Australia. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, primarily, you have been exercised by the China-Russia friendship without limits, you know, yep. as the phrase goes. And you have your doubts that it's going to quite unfold like this. Tell us more, please. Well, what the Ukraine war has shown is that the Sino-Russian partnership, although strong and resilient, is certainly not a friendship without limits. Um, this is a friend, the limitations of their partnership have been exposed in the course of the war, where China has really tried to uh, really walk a, a very thin line between, on the one hand, um, preserving its partnership with Russia, and on the other hand, uh, maintaining its ties with the West because the Chinese economy and the stability of the Chinese communist regime ultimately depends on China's economic performance and that in turn depends on China's continued integration and interdependence with the global economy which is still dominated by the United States and the West. And you think that this, because everybody's been saying yes this is obvious, so why aren't the Chinese pulling back from this rogue state, Russia? Because in a sense they've got nowhere else to go. Uh, if they, if for the sake of argument Xi Jinping were to abandon his quote-unquote, best friend Vladimir Putin, where would he go? It's not like the Americans would say, well done, uh, President Xi, we welcome you with open arms. It's not like the Europeans will look benignly upon the Chinese. China will still be in a tricky strategic neighbourhood. So in a, in a way, what it all it has by way of friends is really Russia. Russia is the closest thing it has to a friend. So if it abandons Russia, it has nowhere else to go. It would then be strategically isolated. Well, actually, you write in, in your Lowy paper, um, as they follow, China and Russia, different trajectories of development, the commonalities between them will become fewer. The relationship will become increasingly unequal and dysfunctional and will be defined principally by its constraints. Now, how long do you think that's going to take? It could take a while because what, until a couple of years. 
No, well beyond, I'd say. I'd say at least in the next, if, if we say like the short to medium term, so call it two to five years, I think the China-Russia relationship will be contingent on the outcomes of the war in Ukraine, depending on whether Putin wins, whether he loses, whether there's some kind of accommodation or stalemate, or maybe if there's an, a major uncontrolled escalation, for example, uh, a wider conflict between Russia and the West, or uh, perhaps Russia's use of uh, chemical and biological weapons, or even a, a tactical nuclear strike on mm. Ukraine form Ukrainian formations. But I think in the short to medium term, it'll be uh, shaped by the outcomes of the war. Longer term, and what I mean by that is a decade, I think the relationship will become less important to China. Moscow and Beijing will have less to talk about. They'll still combine on some things. They'll still be united in their opposition to liberal values, to liberal and internationalism. To the They'll uh, look to undermine America's dominance in global affairs. No question about that. But the areas of commonality will become fewer and they'll become more uneven. And simply put, they'll be playing, China and Russia will be playing in different leagues. And so they'll have less to talk about. Well, you put it very bluntly uh, <laughs> that uh, China is interested in order, world order, yep. which it wants to influence <laughs> very much. Yeah. Russia is interested in disorder. That's where it actually can uh, have wield most power at the moment. It was a pretty dramatic difference, I must say. I think it's the most fundamental difference you can have in international relations today and in the future. A lot of people imagine that it's just that Chinese methods are slightly different to Russia. You know, it doesn't wage war. It, it looks, it's mercantilist in its approach. Um, but in fact, um, the Chinese endgame, I think, is very different. To Russia's endgame, because the Chinese endgame is they are committed to a global order, albeit one where they exercise considerably greater influence than they do today, and where U.S. and America, U.S. and Western influence is much reduced. Nevertheless, they still believe in the principle of a stable global order, a stable international system. Russia has been described as an anarchist of the international system. It thrives on disorder, instability, uncertainty, because it's like a guerrilla fighter. The more chaos and anarchy there is, the more scope there is for it to uh, project its influence and interests. Look, just before we move on to that question of what comes next with Ukraine, you did remind people of a significant event that occurred 160 years ago, I think it is, mm. when a large part of southwest Siberia uh, was actually part of, became Siberia and Russian, yeah. was actually part of China. It was all part of that terrible century for China. It was imposed, I think, on the uh, uh, the Qin regime, wasn't That's it? That's right. So the Qing Empire, the, the, there were three treaties. So as someone in the audience referred to it as a, you know, the other three unequal treaties, uh, 1858, 1860, 1864. And essentially uh, the Tsarist Empire was able to force a settlement on the Qing Empire, uh, which led to the loss of one and a half million square kilometres of territory in a rush in China's northeast, Russia's southeast, yeah. um, 
And essentially, that is half of present-day Russian Far East. It's an absolutely enormous territory. So why don't we hear the Chinese, if they're worried about Taiwan, why don't we hear them talking about that? Because there are a couple of reasons. One is that you don't... You don't try and take back territory off a nuclear weapons power. That's <laughs> that's one, <laughs> in a sense. So it's like force majeure, literally. Um, but another is that the Chinese already control much of the economy of the Russian Far East. So they don't. It's not like they actually need to occupy it to to make it part of China. In fact, they've got it really where right where they like it. Uh, they're able to exploit this territory. They don't have to take responsibility for it. Um, China, Russia, economic relations, and particularly economic relations between China's northeast and Ch uh, Russia's southeast, are conducted on Chinese terms. So, hey, who needs territory in those circumstances? Oh, I thought it would be part of the motherland, but there we are. Now, let's look at what comes next, because you're adamant that this is an exceptionally important um, battle in Ukraine. Yep. Um, and that there are differing views emerging about how and, uh, and where, when the war might end in Ukraine. Why do you think it's it's truly of an existential quality this war in Ukraine? In, you know, which in many ways, as you say, is of little interest to say U.S. foreign policy. Russian behaviour is, but the Ukraine isn't, and has always been a tricky area. The borderlands. Yes, I mean, if it were just about Ukraine, let's be honest, not too many people would care. Certainly, the Americans wouldn't care. This this until the Russian invasion, until a Russian military build-up, sorry, last spring and then the invasion more recently, this was a peripheral priority of American foreign policy. And most of the Europeans didn't really care one way or the other. So why does it matter? Well, it matter what's at stake here is not the fate of a single uh, sovereign uh, dem democracy one state. What is at stake is that, but also the post-Cold War settlement in Europe. So if, for the sake of argument, Putin wins this war, then we will see a return to a divided Europe between a Western Europe, as we would normally understand it at the time of the Cold War, and an Eastern Europe dominated by Russia. But not only that, it actually gets worse than that because it, we're talking about the fate of international order. If Putin wins, then notions like a rules-based international order, which you hear bandied around all the time, are notions of US global leadership, uh, notions of territorial integrity, of, of just generally rules in the international system, all that will be for naught. No one will care because what people will argue, what in in sense many people in the non-West will see, is that you talk, you in the West, you talk about a rules-based international order, and yet you are completely incapable or unwilling to defend those rules even in the European heartland. So what gives you the moral right? What gives you the moral authority to talk about a rules-based international order when you're not even willing to defend it properly? It, therefore, it, given this, 
what might be required to defend it properly because you don't think Putin's pulling back any time soon. Absolutely uh, not, no. Why do you say that so confidently when others are starting to really think about the notion of what a peace would look like um, and the, it's trying to identify off-ramps, as, as it's put, for <laughs> Putin? We in the West make the big mistake of thinking that everyone th more or less thinks, reasons like us. We view international politics through a Western rational actor prism. Now, I believe that Putin is a rational actor, but in a very different tradition of rationality. So Putin has his own logic, has his own reasons for wanting uh, to win the war in Ukraine, to dominate Ukraine, to dominate Eastern Europe, to reposition Russia, reassert Russian influence in the world and in the region. Now, he believes that he cannot afford to lose. And if that leads to the loss of 40,000, 50,000 Russian soldiers, then so be it. But there is, the world is divided into winners and losers, and he's damned if he's gonna be a loser. Now, you sort of were quite adamant that this was, he's, you know, he's gonna to try to out-muscle, out-savage um, anyone yeah. who takes him on. But, you know, we also hear other Russians arguing against this, like that diplomat who resigned, basically sought refuge in the West from Geneva yeah. this week, saying this is completely anti our interests. We're going to go right backwards. So, I mean, I just wonder whether you are quite right about this being a monolithic view inside Russia. It's not a monolithic view, but uh, the, the Russian diplomat you're talking about is in Geneva. <laughs> I'm talking about what's going on in the Kremlin at the heart of Russian power. And while I wouldn't hesitate to call that monolithic, there is a remarkably broad consensus that the war in Ukraine, although they don't call it a war, they call it a special mm. military operation, but that the war in Ukraine is a righteous war. Um, even people who, dis who dislike the war who lament the losses during the war believe that it is the West which is mainly to blame, or, or because in of, some cases in, uh, almost yeah. entirely to blame for the war. They pushed us into it. They provoked us into, into this war, this special military operation. So while uh, this, you're absolutely right, Russia is certainly not monolithic, there is a surprising degree of consensus and push behind the war effort. What worries you then about the way the West is now talking about it? I see that, for instance, The Economist has got a piece this week saying, you know, looking beyond the war, saying there are two camps. There's one that sort of says, let's go for sort of the peace camp, really, and one is the justice camp. They've got yeah. to be punished for what they, how they behaved. You think this is all too soon? This is all too soon because earlier you mentioned uh, off-ramp. Putin's idea of an off-ramp is the other guy's unconditional surrender. You know, there is no draw here. There is a win. I mentioned there's mm. difference between winners and losers. There's, you either win or you lose. And so... But he is well, losing, the, the, isn't he? He doesn't think so. Again, by our conventional Western metrics, he is losing. Any Western leader in Putin's position would be thinking gosh, I need to come to a compromise. I, or we need to sort of, how can I cut my losses? 
He doesn't think in those terms. He thinks that I'm tougher, meaner, got more stamina uh, than any of my Western counterparts. The West is soft. I just need to stick it out. Just in the same way that, for example, the Soviet Union did in the Second World War. The Soviet Union suffered disastrous early losses, but ultimately prevailed. Even in the 1939-40 war against Finland, they did very, very badly initially, but they eventually won through sheer force of numbers. And that's what Putin thinks. It's not only that sheer force of Russian numbers, but it's also that, you know, these these Western leaders, they're worried about rising energy and food prices. They're, you know, limp democracies. They're worried about popular opinion. Um, you know, they'll get bored with Ukraine. Uh, they face all kinds of domestic pressures. Biden, for example, he's really mainly worried about China. So Putin thinks, and the Russian elite thinks, that we can just essentially outlast them. And who's to say they're wrong? Babo Lowe, lovely to chat. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks very much. Bobo Lowe, a non-resident fellow with the Lowy Institute and uh, a long-time expert on Russia-Sino relations. His recent work for the Lowy is called Turning Point? Putin, Xi and the Russian Invasion of Ukraine. And he'll be at the National Press Club this week, by the way, if you want to hear a little more. And may I mention tomorrow on Rear Vision, they're going to look at zero COVID in China, the social, economic and political cost. Um, there is a social and economic political cost of, of them maintaining that policy, potentially also a political one of, of quite a serious nature, very much an unfolding story. Why are they sticking with the policy?